0: From the Old City, a Practical Torah Commentary by Gutman Lodge Numbers 2510, Penchas. the Holidays This week's portion of the Torah briefly lists the yearly holiday schedule and the additional sacrifices that each holiday requires. During the year, as each holiday comes around, we read the section that lists that holiday's additional sacrifices. This means that sections within the portion Penchas are read more than any other parts of the Torah. What is so unique about the holidays that they play such an important role in our lives? After all, we do not have the temple today, so none of these sacrifices ever actually offered. We do not have the privilege of coming up to Yushalayim three times a year to hold these feasts, so why are they still so important to us? Celebrating our holidays renews our history. Without the holidays, we would soon forget who we are as a people. And what is so important about remembering who we are as a people? If we forget who we are, then there would be no reason to carry on as a unique nation. And what is so important about being a unique nation? If we do not go on as a unique nation, there would be complete assimilation into marriage. This would spell the end of the Jewish people. This tragedy is evident in today's assimilated Jews. The more assimilated they are, the less they know about the holidays. Most assimilated Jews are not able to name more than one or two of the Torah's holidays, let alone know anything about their significance. And when there is no knowledge of their significance, there is no reason to maintain them. First to be forgotten is the last day of Sukkot, Shemini Seret. then Shavuos, the holiday when we celebrate the receiving of the Torah is forgotten. Next to go is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, then Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, the Day of Judgment goes, next to go is Sukkot, when the dwelling in booths is forgotten, and last of all to go is Pesach. We can learn why the holidays are so important by seeing which ones go first and which are the last to be forgotten. Pesach requires the most preparation. It imposes the most requirements and restrictions. It seems logical that it should be discarded first. The holiday of sukkah requires the building of the booth and the inconvenience of having to eat all of our meals in it. One would think that these holidays would be the first to be forgotten, but they are the last. Why is Pesach, with all of its details, the last to be forgotten? Because of all the holidays, it is the most family-oriented. Although all of the holidays somehow involve the family, Pesach is the most memorial. Sukkah is also memorial because the extended family comes together and enjoys a huge feast. And this is how the holidays hold us together. They maintain the Jewish family experience. But if Judaism requires the family experience, why is it that only the males participated in the temple service? Furthermore, only males lead the service and read from the Torah in the synagogues, and only males can be counted in a minyan, the quorum. If Jewishness is about the family, what role, if any, does this leave for the women? Are they to only be there for the family dinner? The Torah tells us that on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the high priest would first offer his personal sacrifice to atone for himself and then for his house. The sages explain that his house means his wife. In Hebrew, house and family are the same word, and as the sages point out, the wife is the family. If a man travels to a land where the religious customs are different than the place where he is coming from, and a question arises as to which customs he should follow, he is to follow the custom of where his home is located. And where is his home? Where his wife is. The center of Judaism is not the Temple Mount nor is it the houses of learning. The center of Judaism is the home, and this is the wife. It is she who passes on the Jewish lineage, and it is she who instills her spiritual values in the children for years before they go off to school. While Judaism requires the males to be busy primarily with the services and learning, the wife has to busy herself primarily with the family. Obviously, this does not mean that the men are excused from the obligation of raising the family, nor does it mean that the women are excluded from the Torah. It means that each of us has to contribute what we are best at so that the Jewish family will thrive. It is a common scene to see the rabbi holding the baby in one arm and stirring the soup with the other while the mama is on the computer working out the details of the last real estate sale. It is a secular marriage that insists on equality. The Torah marriage insists on the merging of the two into one. Four arms, four legs, twelve kids, everyone doing what they do best. Who's in charge here? In last week's portion of the Torah, Pinchas' action stopped the plague that Hashem sent because of the children of Israel's immorality with the daughters of Moab. Although many of the Jews were being rebellious by lusting after the Moabite women and worshipping their idols, one man's actions were particularly loathsome. He openly and brazenly brought his idolatrous lover to the entrance of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, where most of the entire assembly were weeping. This week, that sinner is identified by name. Surprisingly, he was the leader of his tribe. What in the world was going on here? Could it be that the leader of an entire tribe in Israel could not find a proper Jewish woman to satisfy her desires? Was he so caught up in his lust that he had to have that very woman who made him worship an idol before she would agree to his cravings? There was a horse, a wagon, and a driver parked by the side of the road. The driver decided to go forward. He slapped the reins against the horse's back and called out, Giddy Up! The horse lurched forward and started going down the road, pulling the wagon and the driver along with him. Although the horse is the power that moves everything, still the driver is in charge. He was in charge, that is, until they passed the pizza parlor, and it just so happened that this particular horse loved pizza. (laughs) The horse snorted loudly. He turned sharply and ran right into that pizza parlor. What happened to the wagon and the driver? Well, they went with the horse into the pizza parlor, who was in charge then. Obviously, the horse was. It was the horse who wanted the pizza, and it was the horse who ran into the pizza parlor, pulling the wagon and the driver with him. The horse is completely in charge unless the driver pulls back on the horse's reins at least as hard as the horse pulls forward. In this story, the horse is the animal instinct that we all have. This aspect of us is also called our animal soul, or animal inclination, The wagon is our body, and the driver is our intellect, our intelligent or godly soul. Every decision we make in life is going to be made by one of these three faculties. The animal inclination in man is always hungry, if not for food, then for something else. It wants action, and it doesn't care too much what kind of action it is the body is slothful. It wants to sit still, to veg out. If it had its way, the body would sit on the couch almost all day long. But the intelligent soul that we all have knows better. It knows that restraint and hard work are worth the effort. But if the intelligent soul becomes at least bit lazy, either the horse or the wagon is going to take charge. Can you imagine a leader of an entire tribe in Israel being so tied to his horse that he would take his non-Jewish object of lust right in front of all of the leaders of Israel? How great was his animal lust? How lazy was his intellect? Every step along the path of life is initiated by one of these three characters, the horse, the wagon, or the driver. even today. A rabbi friend asked me if I had heard about the latest fad guru in India. She seems great, he said. She has over 30 million followers in a huge ashram in India. I said, yeah, and there's probably a lot of idolatry there, too. No, he answered. She teaches universalism, and each group has its own area. There's a lot of love and charity, and each group has its own music, too. It looks great. My first response was that today's teachers of Torah do not know how to give over the spiritual high that should be taught here, and if they did, no one would even think to go after such foolishness. I walked away thinking about this woman's trip and those 30 million people following her, especially all those Israelis there. I saw that the rabbi who told me about her in some strange way really admired what she was doing. He seemed to be looking at her trip with his usual good eye. He seemed to be thinking that maybe he could do something like that here, or even go there to see her for himself. How could I answer this learned rabbi? What is really wrong with it? If, indeed, she is not teaching Hinduism, which I bet she is, and if there are no other forms of idolatry or magic, which I bet there are, what's so wrong with what she's doing with these people? They are sharing love and giving charity, and there's great music too. I could see the great attraction this would have for young spiritual seekers, especially those that even know what they're looking for. How can I tell these good-hearted young people that being there, smoking dope, and doing whatever boys and girls feel like doing is not what they really want? How could I possibly convince them that what they are doing is wrong? I thought about this for some time. My first objections came quickly. Following that trip will surely lead them to marriage and the removal of their families from the Jewish people. So what, they would say they're ready to give up on being Jewish anyway. Torah was never taught to them in such a way that being a Jew meant anything to them. So in their minds, what would they be losing? Surely being a Jew, as they have been, has mostly meant only trouble. Being Jewish like that is obviously not worth giving up all that kickback joy that they have found. Now they feel real freedom to do whatever they want and still can be called righteous and spiritual people. Why would anyone in their right mind start following all of those rules that the Torah insists upon instead of just being free like they seem to be? Okay, if having a Jewish family does not convince them, then they have to know that the lifestyle that they are following will not give them a share in the world to come. So what they would say? This trip says they will have a share in the world to come, and your trip says they won't. Who are we to believe? Besides, I want the great reward now, not just a promise for later. And you know what? It's great here now. I'm here with my friends doing whatever I want to do. I'm getting stoned, having girlfriends, making music. Why do I need all that stuff you're trying to sell me? All those rules and restrictions that you're trying to lay on me. Then I remembered, okay, I understand that you have given up on being Jewish because you really do not understand what it means. And I understand that you have heard various things about the world to come. So you can ask, who shall you believe? But you know what? That trip over there that you are running to, we already did that. We did that to the nth degree. That's just what the 60s were all about. Kick back, sing songs, getting stoned, free love, to do whatever you want. We already tried the it's all okay thing, universalism par excellence. And you know what? We found out that it doesn't go anywhere. At best, it runs around in small circles. And after you run around those circles for a few weeks, months, or years, you still end up having to ask those same essential questions that you had to ask when you first started. What am I doing here? Why was I created? How have I made the world a better place? With whom do I want to make a family? We already learned that hanging out, getting stoned, and singing songs in a foreign language don't even begin to answer these questions. But why don't they? Over there, they have highs from their drugs, love, and music. Why are those things not the answer to spiritual life? When someone smokes drugs, they experience what they call a high. Sometimes they even have an experience that they call a vision. So what is wrong with this? What is really happening to them is that the drug is lowering their threshold of spiritual recognition. It is not that they are being elevated spiritually like they think. A threshold is the level at which you begin to experience something. So if you have a high threshold for pain, you will not be bothered by a certain degree of pain that would bother someone with a lower threshold. When someone is drugged, depending upon the type of drug, his threshold of spiritual satisfaction is lowered tremendously. This means that he is experiencing the mundane physical awareness, but he is calling it spiritual. He is not actually experiencing the spiritual, but the drug is fooling him into thinking that he is having a spiritual experience. The obvious problem with this is that he is being satisfied with those lower experiences, and will not feel the need to do the tremendous work that is really required in order to reveal the actual spiritual perspective. Why should he? All he has to do is smoke a joint and get high. The same thing is true about the love that he feels in those situations. It is not the deep love that comes from sharing life with someone. It is a superficial love based on feeling good in a time where other people are also feeling good. This does not create the bonding that comes from ongoing relationships. But my bottom line on this issue is not these things that I've told you here. My major thought on this subject is still what my initial reaction was. If only the rabbis knew how to teach the spiritual perspective in a palpable way, no one would ever even think to look elsewhere. Later, I checked out that woman guru's website, and as I thought, it is full of idolatry. For instance, she says such things as today there are more than 300 million gods. There is one.com.